This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Marianne O'Connor. Welcome to Better Reading. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. Now, you are so loved by our readers. You probably already know that, but I don't know. Every time the book comes out from you, there's a lot of excitement out there and there's always a lot of positive feedback. I guess you would see some of it, wouldn't you? Yes. Um, it's always really, really satisfying. I mean, as an author, you're at home by yourself, you know, 11 and a half months of the year, and then you have this, this whiz-bang publicity all of a sudden and people reach out to you and, you're not alone anymore. It's like, and you can't believe they've read it, you know, even though you know they've read it. They'll say things like, oh, you know, in that scene, such and such happened. I really liked that. And I'm like, oh, they read it. They really did read it. <laughs> yeah, they really, they really do read it. You know, it's interesting you should say that about authors because I've only been thinking about that in terms of our business and you guys have, I guess it's a career hazard. But because of COVID, Right. And because we have, you know, largely worked at home as a team, um, you've, you've seen our office. We've had no visitors for well over a year now. But recently uh, there was the Sydney Writers' Festival and the Industry Awards Night, you know, the Academy Awards for books. I don't know if you saw any of it on social media. Yes, I did, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, for the first time I felt a bit like an author because when we went out, to, we went to the, one of the two of the parties actually, and just out and about, we felt the love towards the business. Like you know, we were out there and we were getting like, oh, we love what you do. We love better reading, and I didn't know that I'd miss that until I got out there. Yeah, and it's the same as an author, isn't it? It is. It's it gives you some inkling into how big time entertainers get addicted to it. You know, like somebody like Sting or, you know, yes. Donna or someone that they find it hard to retire because when you're up on stage, can you imagine like if you've got a hundred thousand people just giving you that energy, you know? So mm. when I, when I do a, a speech and I've got a few, few people in the room, such a buzz <laughs> on my little tiny scale, but it is because they come up and they, you share things, um, at a human level, face-to-face, and often at a heart level because I write very emotional stories. And quite often they've got some personal sort of anecdote to share with me as well. So you've suddenly got this energy that you can't get at home and it's it's a shared, it's quite spiritual, I would even say, that you're you're sharing a moment with them. Like I had my book launch recently and it was just one person after the other just sharing a moment with me. And I just felt by the end of the day, I was on this incredible high that I felt like I had walked inside people's hearts just over and over and over again. Mm. Not just their minds, their hearts, because Mm. this book is a very emotional book about domestic violence and women's rights. And that was particularly poignant, you know, with this one. So yes, it's an energy that is very, very special. And it makes being an author 
even more wonderful. And also too, you have a perception of yourself, me as a person, me as a business. You know, I have, you think you know what you are, right? Of course you do, you know. But when you go out there, that perception is even different, isn't it? What people perceive of you, what people think of you, how they interpret what you do. It really got me thinking every night. Like, I often thought that COVID was fine for us. We really didn't need to have personal interaction. We could run our jobs. We could run the business. We had Zoom. But I was wrong. I think I'm wrong because you can't sustain that forever. You need that human interaction. You do, particularly this one. What ended up happening, I had this amazing experience that um, I've never aligned with a charity before through my books. I've you know, I've been involved with charities, but never through my books. And this particular book, through all these incredible circumstances, it turned out that the house that the book is set in, Coranda in Hornsby, ended up being the um, the place for the book launch, the venue for the book launch. Wow. So, and the lady that owns the house, see, my sister used to own the house. That's how it ended up being in the book. And the women that originally lived there were suffragettes. And so that was the inspiration behind the whole story. Anyway, this woman's really into the history of her home and I met her and she's on the board of directors of Hornsby Karingai Women's Shelter. And so as it all turned out, we've ended up having this book launch as a major fundraiser for victims of domestic violence and homeless women and we've raised a lot of money and we've had this incredible experience where we've all come together as a community to help women in need and that's what the book's about. So the way it all came about it was just the most in, incredible synchronistic thing that, that I've ever experienced and I'm still on a high from it, you know. And um, so so in particular with this book, being a part of that and talking to mostly women at this function and some, some very beautiful men as well, um, I felt like uh, completely connected with my fellow woman, fellow men. To- yeah, absolutely. I absolutely hear you. I've just noticed that I didn't introduce you because we just got talking. <laughs> And I think this is what the podcast's going to be. We won't stop talking. <laughs> For those that need an introduction, Marianne worked in marketing and studied arts and education before becoming a best-selling historical fiction novelist. Her books are favourites amongst our readers. We've talked about that and are inspired by Marianne's Irish ancestry and family members' experiences at war. Her latest book, and this is the book we're talking about, and we've we've spoken about a little bit, but more to come, Sisters of Freedom, takes us back to 1901 and explores three sisters' turbulent relationships and lives at a time in which women were fighting for the right to vote in Australia. We did talk about the fact that it was timely. Can you firstly just give us an overview of the book and then I want to talk to you about some of the themes in the book? Yes, we skipped ahead, didn't we? We did, we did. We got chatty. (laughs) (laughs) It happens. Um, Okay, so the book is actually inspired by real life about this family suffragettes, as I mentioned, who lived in this home. I used to visit my sister when she lived there and I used to imagine these these women running down their stairs, their, their mother and her four daughters and this sort of dusty professor father who studied dragonflies. And I could only imagine his bewilderment at these, these very strong, feisty women hanging onto their hats and their placards to go and protest at Town Hall in Sydney. And I kept imagining it. This is long before I was ever an author. This is like you know, oh, 12, 15 years ago. And uh, it really, really inspired this kernel of an idea. And when I came to write my sixth novel a year and a half ago, um, I just thought I I want to write about those women. I want to write about suffrage. 
And I don't know why, but the timing has turned out to be incredible. Um, but the, the actual novel is about three sisters and um, I'm one of three sisters and I suppose it's a little bit biographical in the characters. But the oldest sister is um, quite a sensible girl. Uh, she wants to have children and can't and she worked in an orphanage. So that's really bittersweet for her. And I think a lot of women have already told me that, that they're very touched by her story. Then the middle sister is the feisty kind of naughty one, I suppose. It's very outspoken. And she's a suffragette through and through. She says, I will never marry. I will dedicate my life to the cause. Her name's Frankie. Frankie says things that I wish I could say. (laughs) She's no holds. And that you've said through Frankie. Yes. I get to have my voice through Frankie. She just says exactly what she thinks. And she really gives it to a few stuffy men in the book, let me tell you. But she doesn't think she'll ever marry. And of course, you know, I complicate that decision for her. And it's up to you. I I really like to think the reader is going to be struggling with Frankie with this. Because back then, if you got married, you gave up everything. You couldn't have a job. There's no way to be a suffragette. You know, you Mm. couldn't. You couldn't really do anything. You had, if you're a teacher, you had to give up your job. You became the property of a man. You couldn't have a bank account. If if he was violent and you left him, he got immediate custody of your children. So most women didn't. So the, this was really shocking. Um, as I did my research, I always thought that suffragettes wanted the vote because they wanted the vote. I now realise which is that, a good enough reason as well. Yeah, equal rights. But what they really wanted was to change the laws in Australia. Yeah protect each other and that is that is the most beautiful thing and they won you know mm. so it's 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 a very inspirational part of history I hope that translates into the pages and then the youngest daughter is Ivy she's probably me she's pretty dreamy artistic she likes to stick her head in the sand and I I used to be like this I used to think I don't want to know about the sad ugly things in the world I just want the beautiful nature and I, I want to dream away and you know you can't really be like that. People it's a fine line, isn't it, Marianne, between wanting to be, because, you know, there are moments I just don't want to, I mean, I'm highly political. I follow US politics. I follow Australian politics. And, you know, I get criticised for that. I get criticised for that from our listeners as well sometimes. Some people don't like it. But I feel it's a fine line. I don't want to live and breathe anger. For sure. That's not what I want to do. And I'm not that because I work in a beautiful industry and I get to talk to wonderful authors like yourself. But it's not being political. It's actually caring for others. And it's fine to choose to be dreamy and la, 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 but you can't, you'd have to really be disciplined not to notice what's happening around you, wouldn't you? Or not caring. Yes. I mean, someone said to me once, and it's a famous saying, silence is condonement. Mm. That changed things for me. I think when I was little, my father was very protective and I was the youngest of six and so he would, um, something would be on the news and he'd say, oh, out your pop, bubs, this isn't something for little girls. And so I'd go and stand in the hallway while the bad story was on. He'd say, right, you can come back in now. You know, you can watch the weather and the sport sort of thing. He didn't want me to see the ugliness in the world. But in a way, as beautiful as that is, I needed to eventually grow up and have a voice and have a political conscience and a social conscience. And I think this book in a way is my grow up book that I, mm. I'm i finally now aligned with as charity. I always wanted to, that this opportunity has now come through this story and through really directly through the suffragettes themselves because the Australian suffragettes were amazing. Mm. And Ivy gets a big wake-up call and it's my wake-up call in real life that she, mm. her sister Frankie is just, you know, wake up to yourself, you know, and uh, and Ivy goes through um, a big trauma and it forces her to. She ends up 
in one of the poorest parts of Australia at the time, up the Hawkesby River, injured and alone, and it changes everything. She's living in extreme poverty and it just changes everything for her. Mm. And I think that the readers will really appreciate the idea of a, a privileged girl from a privileged home suddenly having nothing and fighting for her life. Well, you know, that's how the other half lived. Mm. There's a lot of, uh, and you will have heard this, there's a lot of criticism very often about, you know, women's fiction or women's historical fiction being, people have used terms to me like popular. And I was like, what does that mean? Everyone likes to read it. <laughs> so it's wrong. <laughs> I, mean, I can never get my head around that. But either way, if you were serious about the genre, you would see that there are these opportunities to tell these stories. And people that are writing historical fiction, well, and, and historical fiction that sells and is loved and read, usually the research is done. The homework is done. There was a lot of research in this. And the thing is you can't run away from the truth, you know, the, no. the truth of the time. When you write historical fiction, the history's got to be right. Mm. So you are you are writing truth. Otherwise you will get <laughs> in a lot of trouble with your readers, let me tell you. You can't really get anything wrong. And you don't want to either because it's their story that you're bringing to life in a dreamlike fashion, you know. It's like you've, you've fallen into their world and dreamt your own life within it. And the the actual people that were there in Australia, I have to tell you, I had no idea. We have one suffragette called Vita Goldstein who was our, our leader, really. She was the leading suffragette in the world and she should be a national hero. I don't know how we've missed this somehow. Mm-hmm. How is she not on a banknote or something, you know? But she actually, she grew up privileged and she worked with the underprivileged in the slums of Melbourne with her mother because her mother wanted her to see that and and to help and to have a life of conscience. And she was so moved by what she saw. I mean, back then these women would have baby after baby who would turn to crime because there was no food, there was violence and drunkenness and it was just incredibly appalling conditions they lived in. And she saw all of that. She ended up opening a school with her mother and then she started the Women's Sphere magazine and then she became a very powerful public speaker and she travelled all over the world. She was the first Australian to speak in the White House. I know most people haven't heard of it. I just want to go back to getting your facts right. This is um, an interesting story. Back in the day when I used to work at Random House, and I can't remember who the author was, but often readers would read a book and write about some of the facts of whether they were correct or not. And this particular fact, which just blew me away, was that the, the character was in London. You've got those gated parks they're locked, you know, at a certain time. And this character walked into that gated park for whatever reason. Well, the letter that came from a reader was, well, that couldn't have happened because the park closes at four o'clock or five o'clock. And I just thought, wow, that's detail, right? You've got to get that right. Yeah. I actually had a scene in the book where the moon was full on the river. Now, this is 1902. <laughs> and my editor came back and said, it was only three quarters that night. And I said, no one is going to know that. And she said, yes, they will (laughs) change it. And it was quite difficult to change because I kept talking about this really bright moonlight all the time. Actually, it wasn't even sorry. It was like half moon. So some of the things couldn't have happened without full moonlight. And it was really irritating. (laughs) But I listened to her. You've got to listen to the editor. You absolutely do. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Talk to me about where how writing came to you because it came quite late. Yes. Well, um, I didn't get published until 45. How old am I? 46, and I'm now 52. So, yes, yeah, six years, six years ago. Right. So, firstly, hang on, go back to what you were doing and why you wanted to write. Well, I always wanted to write. I think most writers would tell you that and probably a lot of your listeners deep down would like to write. I've, I've certainly found that. But you, you just think, oh, there's no way anyone's going to publish me. Like, why would they? You know, you hear stories of 10,000 submissions a year and a handful taken and you just think it's, it's it's a pipe dream. But, I mean, I had many pipe dreams. I wanted to be, you know, a famous musician and I wanted to be the famous speaker and I, I had the Madonna of careers. I did so many things. But I used to own a fitness centre. <laughs> I was a college lecturer. Um, I've, I've done so many things, but marketing kept coming back and my degree was late. I did my degree in my early 30s when I had my children because that was such a good idea to have two pregnancies and a five-year degree. <laughs> and studying, <Yeah>, genius. <laughs> Working three part-time jobs, very clever. Yeah. Uh, but I did it. I just knew I had to do it. You know when things just hit you? Like yeah. I turned 30 and said, right, I'm going to go get my degree. And then when once I got the degree, right, well, I'm going to speak publicly. So I, I became a college lecturer and I did that sort of thing and teaching a bit on the side. And then after that I was like, no, I want to be a writer. <laughs> Hang on, I just want to go back to touching on music, right? Had you been singing or playing an instrument or was that something you were going to learn? <laughs> no, well, no, I've always played. Um, but oh, my- okay. All right, you can have it then. (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't just dancing around the lounge room to ABBA. It wasn't just checking. (laughs) 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 It's true. No, well, you know, the problem was my two best friends growing up with in Mm. my neighbourhood, we played guitar and sang together all the time, the three of us. Mm. They've both gone on to be really well-known, great musicians, and I've just languished in the background still, you know, strumming away (laughs) by myself. (laughs) I just needed to make sure that there was some talent there. So obviously oh, there was. It's, it's uh, <laughs> a minor talent. I have uh, a lot of ambition and not a great deal of talent, but I, I could write songs. I could write the lyrics. I wanted to get the words out. There you go. Uh, I can't, I'm not really a very good singer. I'm not really a very good guitarist. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why writing has worked for you. <laughs> yeah, it is funny. So anyway, yes, I ended up becoming a writer. No, 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 hang on. Yeah, I need more information there. So... <laughs> So, you know, you don't just wake up in the morning and then, oh, I'm a writer. Tell me how you approached it. Okay. Well, I'm very, no, my father's passed away. I was very, very close to my father and he was a famous artist. And actually, that's his painting. Oh, you I can, can see. I've been a podcast, but this one of his paintings is behind me. He was quite a well-known artist, Kevin Best. He was at one stage like the top ten artists in the country. He was very successful. But prior to that, he was a stockbroker and he called it the rat race. He didn't really want to be. One day he came home and said to my mother, 
I want to be an artist. Now, six children. <laughs> wow. He was 43, 43, 44. And it took him about, he made just enough money from it to start off, but he, he really turned professional about 45, 46. So I grew up with that. And he was the happiest man you ever knew because he loved it so much. Every day he couldn't wait to paint the most beautiful paintings. And he was such a beautiful man. And I loved him. And I used to sit down down in his studio while he painted and listen and talk to him. And he, he solved the problems of life for me. And he was so gorgeous. And I learnt from that. I really learnt from that. I, I, he always said to me, if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. So when I hit that age, I started thinking quite seriously, I really do want to be an author, but I, I just don't think. And then, but I kept thinking, Dad did it. Dad followed his dream. What he's a role always, model. Yeah, yeah. he used to say, follow your star. And mm. I used to stand out staring at the stars thinking, but it's impossible. But And I got published, you know, this is really freaky. I got published exactly one year later. He died at 4.44 in the afternoon. Mm. One year later, the email landed saying, here's your contract from HarperCollins. Oh, wow. So he never saw you published? No. no. One year to the minute. Oh, he saw me struggle to try to get published. It took me three years. Mm-hmm. And uh, two years into that, I was still working all these jobs, but I'd write at night. And then two years in with Gallipoli Street, he passed away. So it took three years. The fact that that arrived at that moment, I just felt, I know that's very woo-woo and spiritual to anyone who thinks I'm being way too that way, but I felt like he orchestrated it a bit because <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, it was too strange. It was exactly one year. Uh, so, so who picked it up and why this one? I mean, was it the first book you'd written or the first book that, that well, this book got published? It was my first fully written novel. I, I'd started lots of novels. I'm right. sure many listeners have experienced that you get three chapters in and discard mm-hmm. it and think, oh, it's rubbish, you know. And when I got to this one, the, the company I was working for actually closed down. And so I had so only part-time work and I always worked full-time, like I always was madly working and so all of a sudden I was only working sort of two days a week doing a bit of part-time teaching looking for something else and uh, I had time I'd never had time and so I sat down my sister-in-law got published Benison O'Reilly and that really encouraged me and I went to her book launch and listened to her speak and I thought about it had a little chat to her that night about it her and my brother and the next day I sat down and I opened up a blank document and I wrote the words Glibly Street and Gallipoli Street three years later. It got picked up fairly early on that they kept telling me to get it re-edited, re-edited and re-edited. Three professional edits, three rewrites, and the company that were interested, I won't mention the name, at the last minute rejected it. So I had mm. I'd been waiting seven months. This is the third rewrite. And she said, I've decided you're a one-hit wonder. I don't think you have another novel in you, so we're not going to go with you. Oh, and I was so ouch. devastated. Like you imagine after three years, my brother kept saying, take the best rejection letter you've got, frame it and put it on the wall and leave it alone. It's not going to happen. And I said to him, I will never give up. <laughs> I'm very stubborn. <laughs> it, you know, and you can be stubborn. You can be all of those things. But, gee, it takes a lot of courage. To that was on. the dark moment of the soul, I'd say. I'm I remember I put my forehead on the desk where I'd written the book and I cried. I mean, I really cried. And because it was about my grandfather and I just believed it had to be told, my Anzac grandfather, I just he wants this story. I know he does. I want this, you know. I used to light a candle in front of him and Nana 
and talk to him all the way through writing it. I just felt like it was meant to be and I couldn't understand why it wasn't happening, you know. And then anyway, my sister rang and I'm blubbering away. (laughs) They don't want it anymore. And she said, I know someone at HarperCollins. Let me just give it to her. You never know. Well, I think it was two days later I got a phone call and they said, we want this novel. We loved it. Oh, wow. And then, you're not going to believe this, the other the other woman rang back, I've changed my mind. <laughs> so I went with HarperCollins. I went with um, the ones that, yes, you know, believed Absolutely. the most. <laughs> <laughs> that believed in it first off. Yeah. I want to go back just to Sisters of Freedom um, and just talk about, because as you've said, that it's timely. Has a lot changed for women? Yes and no. I think... The hardest thing we still can't seem to change is attitude. Mm. Like this is really interesting, this question, because my 18-year-old son said to me, Mum, we don't really need feminism anymore. We've already changed all the laws in Australia, mind you. Mm. He had a very good point with that. However, I actually wrote an article about this. I haven't got it. I haven't managed to give it to anyone to publish it, but this is what I told him, you know, Um, and what I told him was... um, It's not about the laws, even though it is fine-tuning those laws, particularly in in Canberra at the moment. It's about attitude. You know, when I was a teenage girl, I'd be terrified to walk past a workplace site. I'd have to really get my courage together to walk past because I knew they would yell at me. I knew they'd catcall. I knew they'd say rude things to me, and I was very frightened. I was frightened to walk home from school because you might get somebody leaning out of a car yelling at you, that you really got harassed everywhere you went, you know. Whereas I found now with my nieces, that's really pulled back a lot. That That's one improvement. So that's what I mean by attitude, like even like, you know, throw like a girl or don't be a girl, don't cry like a girl, you're such a girl. Like I was at football on the weekend watching my son play, the man next to me yelled out, this isn't netball, <gasps> you know. And I turned around and I said, you can't say that anymore. I, haven't you been seeing the ads on television? And he's like, oh, you know what I mean. Men play netball. And I was like, but I pulled him up on it. I thought, no, 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 I'm not putting up with that. <laughs> but that's the attitudinal aspects still really need to change. Having said that, we have come a very long way. And the back of the book has got a timeline of everything that's changed. But the number one thing that probably shocked me the most was that a woman who was a teacher had to leave if she married. They didn't change until the 1950s. Mm, so recently. That's incredible. Look at all the female yeah. teachers that we so desperately need. Mm. And the other one that shocked me is the first official women's shelter didn't open in Australia until the 1970s. Mm. All those years that they had nowhere to go. Just- Do you know what's shocking me now, what's happening in Parliament House and has been ha- happening, and it's only kind of erupted now. So how long have women working in that building have had to put up with that crap? It's it, but you know when you think about it doesn't shock me it should but it, it doesn't. Mm. I don't know a single woman who hasn't been harassed. I've been harassed a lot in my life. Mm. I've I've been through things that I'll probably start talking about more publicly now. But you know, I'm not alone. It's every woman. Mm. I've had men. When I was owned this gym. A man came in, he reached over the counter and said, how was your weekend, Marianne? Did you get some? Mm. But he said, under my dress, under my underpants and grabbed my bum. Mm. And I owned the gym. Mm. That's how little respect, you know, and that's just one of many thousands of millions. Every, every woman has this, you know. Uh, how Has anyone not been 
approached on a train or a bus or followed home. It, it, so when you think, oh, well, in somewhere like federal parliament where it should be the least likely place, I, I can absolutely see why this has happened and why they didn't want to speak out because you're opening a can of worms. You're going to have a lot of people saying, I don't believe you, mm. lying cow. <laughs> you know? mm. um, and they just think I'm over it. I'm exhausted. I, it's just so painful. I don't want to go to court. I don't want to stand up. So these women that are standing up right now, I have so much admiration for them because it's courage and it's relentless. The media mm. at them. And they've got to relive it again and again and again and again. It takes a lot of guts to do what they're doing. Oh, absolutely. You know, I think about Julia Gillard, whether you liked her or not, it doesn't matter. But what she endured during that time that we accepted, that female journalists accepted, not a lot was written at the time when she was Prime Minister at how persecuted she was, how ridiculed she was about her sex. I mean, that stupid ABC series about her that was out, you know, that you would never make about men. And that should have been a hint of what was happening in there because they virtually got away with that. She gave that speech. Yeah, fantastic speech. I love her for that. Oh, I I often go back to that. Yes, yes. Mm. And that's the thing that what I learned from the book and what I think we're doing right now is that you need to have a voice. Silence is condonement, Mm. but then you need to take action. Mm. So we need to talk about it. We need to admit it. I mean, I've just admitted things right here now that I've never admitted, you know. Mm. Um, but it's it, you have to admit it and have a voice if if we can put light on it, if we all stand up, and which I think we are. It's mm. everywhere at the moment people are being honest about it. They're mm. coming out and it's it's fantastic. My, my girlfriends, we go out to coffee and we, we're actually talking about it and, oh, yeah, that happened to me. That ha- You never told me that, you know. And, and and I think your son is right to a certain degree. I'm really, really hopeful for that next generation. I really am. I think they've been parented by people like us, by, you know, and I think that culturally they have a different awareness and hopefully the future is going to be very different. I really believe that. My sons are 18 and 16. Yeah. They have great respect for women and yeah. I, I really see that they are, they are definitely in a different cultural stage than than my brothers were. Mind you, my brothers lovely men, but it's more that they just the way it was. I mean, being called a girl was a big insult for any reason, and that or a woman even worse. You know, the worst insults you can have seem to come back to our gender. You know, the worst swear word of all is about our gender, and I just think, why? Why do that? You've got mothers. You know, how did it ever happen? But back then, like I said, you couldn't you couldn't vote, you couldn't stand for parliament. Do you know that the Australian women got the vote and the right to stand for parliament before anywhere else in the whole world? Mm. New Zealand did get the vote just before us, a partial vote, but we got the vote and the ability to stand for government. First place in the in the Western world. And that was nineteen hundred and two. That didn't happen in England until nineteen eighteen. Yeah, and wow. nineteen twenty. A long time later. Yeah. Look at wow. That. Yeah. Marianne O'Connor, the book is called Sisters of Freedom. Read it. It's wonderful. Thank you so much for your time today. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Oh, I've loved it. Thank you so much. And I really hope people are inspired by the work of our Australian suffragettes. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. 
or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.